Good morning. How can there how can there be somebody in chat already saying that this show sounds like this show sounds like a repeat? The show hasn't started yet. How can you be in chat saying you listen to Monday's show and this sounds like the same show when I haven't started the show yet? Like, like, are you a bot? Like, what? What is what is that that comment that chat message? This like I just played the intro. How can you say it sounds like a repeat? I haven't started the show. I haven't. I just now started speaking. Like, like what? What is that? You should learn to bot better. <laughs> like, <laughs> what a dumbass bot. <laughs> Yeah, my mustache looks different because I've been sneezing until I gave myself a headache for the past like 24 hours. Oh, it's bad. These allergies, these damn trees and the, their sexual energy and hormones and all their pollen. It is it's absolute torture. Oh, I have been I have been so miserable. But I'm going to do a show anyway. And if I suddenly cover up the mic and the and the camera and like disappear for a moment it's because i've sneezed <laughs> and everything has gone everything has gone wrong um okay okay where to start today where to start let's let's start with some court documents yeah the trees and their damn orgies man oh it was extra windy here in virginia like it's you virginia doesn't get a lot of wind or at least that's what it growing up in north texas uh, I would not say that Virginia, Southern Virginia is very windy. Um, but yesterday we had a very, very windy day and it blew pollen everywhere. And um, yeah, that, that that has made my life extra difficult. Um, I have been I have been drinking honey and eating honey and snorting honey and injecting honey. And uh, I have not been boofing honey Um I never went to college, so I never learned how to do that. So, um, but the honey is doing all it can to try and help me. <laughs> and it's, it's overwhelmed. Okay. First thing we haven't talked about this case in a long time. There's been a bunch of filings in it. Um, and I've been looking at the filings here and there, but we haven't, we haven't spent much time in this case in a long time. And I think it's super important. It's Huddleston versus FBI. Slash DOJ, it's um the FOIA case where um, Huddleston is suing to get access to the FBI's records on Seth Rich. So the last big piece of news we got out of this case was that there were in fact two laptops. There's the personal laptop, which is in the possession of MP Metropolitan Police. In which, if I'm if I'm recalling everything correctly, I could be wrong. It's been a while since we looked at it, but if I'm recalling everything correctly, there's the personal laptop which Metropolitan Police have, and which the FBI has never possessed, according to the FBI. Uh, but they do have images of. They have image disk apparently. So it's been imaged onto a CD drive or whatever, and was given to the FBI as a record. And those things have been sub. It's been subject to FOIA, but. There's also the work laptop, which the FBI has, and it has an evidence number and is part of an active investigation. Um, 
I'm I'm trying if I remember correctly, they described it as a national security investigation. Um, but they have that laptop and it's in an evidence locker in a specific room and it does not count towards FOIA. And the reason I mean, one of the reasons they're saying that it doesn't count as a record that's subject to FOIA, it gets a little confusing, but it makes sense that you wouldn't have evidence in an active investigation be subject to FOIA because then the bad guys could just FOIA the evidence that you might have against them, right? So if bad guy A is under investigation, his friend, bad guy B, could just FOIA the FBI for the evidence and then would have all the evidence they have against him, right, before the investigation was complete, and therefore it would tip them off to how they might obstruct the investigation, etc., and who the targets were, all that kind of stuff. But the argument would be it's been seven years or so, and there's already been indictments. What is this investigation? Sounds like you guys are just trying to hide the ball. You're just trying to prevent people from getting access to what you have in relation to Seth Rich and his murder. So that's that's like that was like the last really big news, and that's where the battle has been over what's a wreck. That's what it, the battle has become over the past few months is what qualifies as a record that's subject to FOIA, what doesn't. Um, so most recent filings in this, on April 8th, Huddleston, the plaintiff, asked the judge to decide on these motions or these issues, which I think are important. I think these are great questions for the judge to handle. Let me make this a little bigger so if y'all watching can, can read it. Um. All right. Brian Huddleston is asking the court to decide these matters. One, whether the FBI should be compelled to search its digital evidence files. Two, whether the FBI should be compelled to search its link messaging system. You probably, we, we've all kind of become a little bit more familiar with the FBI's messaging system that's called Link um, that they use to message one another. And then We've also learned about their mess internal uh, document server that's like Sentinel, where like 302s and other things get uploaded to. So he wants them to decide whether or not they should, should be required to search their link messaging system whenever someone files a FOIA. Where the FBI should com be compelled to search for records in Teleporter, another filing system. Whether the FBI should be compelled to search for missing forms related to items or evidence already identified. Where the FBI should be compelled to search for records related to activities of the CIA and other agencies or third water. Third third parties, not water. I, I'm reading chat as I'm looking at this. I don't know where water came from, but I have no idea where water came from. I should stop reading chat. Whether the FBI should be compelled to search for records related to confidential informants and online persons. Eight, whether the FBI should be compelled to search for all records, all reports concerning the 2016 hack of Democratic National Committee emails. And finally, whether the FBI should be compelled to answer questions about the adequacy of its searches. Now, that was April 8th. Two days later, on April 10th, Huddleston asked for um, permission, basically, or time to... Um, file a new supplemental complaint. So the original complaint was him asking for 
this FOIA, these FOIA documents. He wants to supplement that with a new filing because he's gotten more information. He says the FBI is not disclosing all of its major information systems as required by the law. Furthermore, the FBI's email systems are neither disclosed nor indexed. So emails about Seth Richer laptop are not, it appears, are not subject to this FOIA, and he's arguing they should be. On April 24th, DOJ asked for more time to respond. On April 27th, the, jo- the, the judge said that the FBI had until today, May 1st, which was on Monday, um, to leave a response, and then they did. They filed their response that night, and it's um, they've got an attitude. <laughs> they brought an attitude. They are not happy with Huddleston, and they are ready for this thing to be over, I think. Um. Let me show you some highlights from it. I'm looking for the uh, document now. Where did it go? All right. So here is their response. There's two responses. One is to update information. We've already looked at. I don't really need to look at that one. I'm going to go to this one. All right. This is their response to those issues that they want the F- the judge to decide. They describe what's going on in the introduction. Plaintiff's attempt to revisit the adequacy of the FBI search via a motion for summary judgment is improper at this stage. Plaintiff has sought leave to file a new summary judgment motion outside the briefing schedule set by the court. Plaintiff nor has plaintiff sought leave to seek additional clarification on the memorandum. Even if properly before the court, plaintiff has failed to establish that he is entitled to the relief that he seeks. The FBI objects to plaintiff's statement of undisputed facts in its entirety. You guys have everything wrong. Rather than state facts with proper citations to the record, plaintiff essentially provides an introduction to his motion, incorporating his arguments as detailed below. As far as digital evidence... The plaintiff argues that the FBI should be compelled to search its digital evidence files by incorporating by reference arguments he previously raised in his reply. Plaintiff addresses Seth Rich's work laptop and related documents. Specifically, the reply challenges the FBI's determination that the work laptop and related documents are not agency records under FOIA, as set forth in the sixth Seidel Declaration. As explained by Seidel, the FBI determined that the work laptop and its derivative evidence are not agency records under FOIA. And they use these two cases to arrive at the analysis, DOJ versus tax analyst and uh, Department of Health uh, versus Burka. As this issue has already been briefed and is pending before the court, plaintiff's inclusion of this issue is redundant. The FBI will rely on the analysis by Seidel. Plaintiff argues on the le- as far as link messaging system, the plaintiff argues that the FBI should be compelled to search its link messaging system. In support, plaintiff offers two emails sent by plaintiff counsel to the undersigned, demanding information about link messaging systems. Plaintiff also re- references two online news articles purporting to discuss the link messaging systems. As a preliminary matter, plaintiff may not amend his original FOIA request via emails to, ca- to counsel during FOIA litigation. Additionally, the FBI objects to Exhibits 2 and 3, which are printouts of online articles as improper summary judgment evidence. 
Now, they get really snarky right here in this uh, footnote. And I just want to read it because this is the attitude that they're putting into their filing. And it, I mean, this is just straight up attitude. Uh, right here, footnote one. Plaintiff's reply claims that the FBI's digital evidence policy guide has not been released publicly until now. The FBI would direct plaintiff to this URL. In fact, it would probably be helpful for the plaintiff to pursue the entire FBI vault at vault.fbi.gov as it contains a lot of useful public information for FOIA requesters that plaintiff repeatedly claims is hidden and inaccessible to the public. So, they are, uh, they are treating Huddleston's persistence in pursuing these FOIA records or to get some of these records con to be considered FOIA-able, if that's a word, um, as obnoxious, and they're being obnoxious right back. Now, it says... Additionally, the FBI objects to this uh, articles because blah, 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 hearsay. The Seidel Declaration states, the FBI encourages the participation of FBI personnel in both internal FBI-sponsored and external United States government-sponsored electronic information sharing technologies. Information exchanged through such means may constitute record material, even though that material may not be approved FBI record-keeping system. All information that meets the definition of a federal record, including data and metadata created or receiving using electronic uh, information sharing means, must be entered into an authorized FBI record-keeping system. Thus, based on Records Management Policy Guide, if a link message meets the definition of a federal record, it must be entered into an authorized FBI record-keeping system. That system would be Sentinel, and the FBI already searched Sentinel. The pleadings in this case are replete with that information. Saying, look, everything that should be there is there, and we've already searched it, so go away. Teleporter. Plaintiff argues the FBI should be compelled to search for records in Teleporter. In support, plaintiff offers two emails. Also, discuss, also references online articles. Plaintiff is not entitled to discovery in FOIA litigation. Additionally, the FBI objects to Exhibit 8, print out of an online article, as improper for the same reasons that the other ones were improper. Teleporter is a system used to facilitate the transfer of data, not a system of records. Moreover, plaintiff cannot call into question the adequacy of the search by engaging in mere speculation that there are yet uncovered documents which may exist. If FBI agents were using Teleporter to send censorship requests to social media companies like Twitter, then those agents were perpetrating felonies. Other, that's a quote from one of the articles. Other than general speculation that Teleporter may contain responsive records, plaintiff has not articulated any facts that suggest this is the case. Teleporter is not a record system that is subject to FOIA. As far as electronic surveillance, those indices are clearly identified in the FBI's public internet site listing FBI Privacy Act systems. Plaintiff failed to challenge the adequacy of the FBI search of those indices. Missing forms. 
Bennett argues the FBI should be compelled to search for missing forms related to items of evidence based on a list of forms someone sent to plaintiff. They didn't identify it. As previously stated, plaintiff may not amend his original FOIA request via emails to counsel during FOIA litigation. Plaintiff's belief that missing forms may exist based on a list that someone sent him fails to challenge the adequacy of the search, and the FBI maintains that the FBI searched its systems in such a reason with which a reasonable person would have reason to believe that records sought by plaintiff might be found. Basically, we did a good enough job, and it was a reasonable job. You're asking us to do more, and we don't need to do more because we've already done the work that we were required to do. As regards CIA activities and other agencies, plaintiff argues that the FBI should be compelled to search for records related to activities of the CIA and other agencies or third parties. First, any investigation involving the CIA would have been a national security investigation and therefore would be exempt from FOIA. Further, the FBI would have issued a GLOMAR response to neither confirm nor deny the existence of those records. Moreover, plaintiff's argument on this point is based on nothing more than speculation. Quote, if the FBI is in possession of responsive records from another agency like the CIA or any other source, then the FBI is obligated to produce those records, he says. Plaintiff cannot call into question the adequacy of the search based on speculation, and other responsive documents might exist. As far as confidential informants and online personas, Plaintiff argues that the FBI should be compelled to search for records related to confidential informants and online personas based on third person someone contacting plaintiff's counsel who claimed to have been in contact by some fourth person regarding Seth Rich by the Twitter handle WhisperTech. Through the unnamed contact, it's not clear if that reference is to the third person or the fourth person, quote unquote, believes was either a confidential informant or FBI employee. That's a lot. That's a lot of steps. Right there. That's a lot of loose connections. The string of unknown contingencies is clearly based on speculation and cannot serve as the basis to challenge the adequacy of a search. I have to agree with that. That's, I mean, a guy that I know talked to another guy that he knows, and then his friend who was online at the time happened to observe. That's too many, that's too many uh, dots removed right there. Finally, any investigation concerning the use of an FBI informant would be exempt from disclosure anyway under Exemption B7D. And the FBI would have entered a Glomar response anyway. I'll come back to that in a minute. I have a comment on it. All right. Hack of DNC emails. The plaintiff argues that the FBI should be compelled to search for all reports containing the 2016 hack of DNC emails. By incorporating by reference arguments, he previously raised in his sir reply in opposition to the defendant's FBI notice of supplemental declaration and Vaughn indices, blah, blah, blah. Plaintiff referenced an email sent by his counsel to the undersigned, alleging again that someone sent him information about companies other than CrowdStrike that allegedly investigated the DNC hack. The email includes links to three online articles purportedly about the DNC hack. Plaintiff claims that, quote, if the FBI has copies of reports or communications from these companies, those reports should be covered by our request, our FOIA request. The FBI objects to the exhibits as improper, inadmissible hearsay, not capable of being authenticated, etc., etc. Second, plaintiff's allegation of an inadequate search is one based on speculation, 
tied to an anonymous tip from a, either a third removed or fourth removed unidentified source. Finally, plaintiff concedes that he already raised this same issue before with the court and plaintiff's inclusion of this issue again is redundant and the FBI relies on its explanations of adequacy of the search in the fourth and seventh cital declarations. And discovery, plaintiff argues that FBI should be compelled to answer questions about the adequacy of its searches. Courts generally do not permit discovery in FOIA cases. In the rare case when the court does permit discovery, it is limited to determine the thoroughness of an agency's search for potentially responsive documents. And even then, discovery is typically only allowed when there is some reason to believe that the agency's search has been less than thorough. Moreover, affidavits submitted by agency are accorded a presumption of good faith, which cannot be rebutted by purely speculative claims about the existence and discoverability of other documents. Here, the court had already found that the FBI's declarations are reasonably detailed and submitted in good faith, the searches were adequate, and there is no evidence of bad faith. So, they're asking the judge to basically say, no, we're done with this. Now, I'm... While the edit, this this reply, both of them, <clears throat> both of the FBI's replies here uh, contain a lot of attitude. Um, well, I guess not a lot. There's some attitude in them. And it shows a bit of uh, disdain and uh, disrespect towards Huddleston. But I, I can also kind of bring myself to where I can put myself in the FBI shoes and be like, this case has been going on for so long. This is now, we're now past over a hundred documents filed in the case over these years since it first began. And we produced everything that we can produce to you. And you keep coming back and saying it isn't good enough. At some point it is good enough. Maybe isn't all that the plaintiff wants or that we would want, but it is everything that they're required to provide. But I also don't blame Huddleston for going after this and trying to force the issue and trying to pick at the Seth Rich laptop stuff wherever he can, right? To try and get whatever information he can by whatever means he can get it legally through these FOIA filings and uh, asking the judge for whatever he can, even if it is redundant even if it has been addressed before, just trying to get whatever further information he can. And I, I respect that and admire it and I appreciate it. But the FBI's reply is a shutdown. And I mean, it's, it comes down to deciding what is subject to a FOIA and the FBI's explanation in this and then in other previous filings it's really on their side of things. Like they really have the upper hand here as far as I can tell. And I'm no expert anyway. But one thing this does make me think of is that this, this tug of war that's going on in this case is a lot like the tug of war that we see happening with um, things having to do with Durham and Horowitz where there's a group, there's especially a group of people who researchers who feel entitled to 
as much information as possible. And the more time goes on, the more they feel entitled to it because it's been so long and you guys haven't dropped an indictment or revealed it yourselves. We're just going to, you're just, that means you must be trying to hide it from us. There must be something amiss here. And that attitude keeps on building and building and building. And so when the FBI comes out and they're like, Hey, this is the box within which we pull FOIAs from and the stuff you're asking for doesn't fit in that box. Um, it's a it's an adequate and reasonable reply, but it's doesn't it doesn't satisfy the plaintiff or the researchers because they feel like the FBI is hiding all these things. And it more the longer it goes on, the more people start thinking it's because the FBI has something to hide, and they're hiding it to protect themselves rather than protect the investigation. And I, I, I can see it. I can understand both. I can understand it from both sides. Um, I'm interested to in see what the judge does with this, because I kind of feel like with the tone, I kind of have the sense from reading the last several filings in this and it, before, like, I think it was in March. Um, I think it was in March. Brian Huddleston was filing to get some compensation because this has gone on so long. It's cost him um, over $100,000 in legal bills to try and get at this information. So there's going to be a lot of frustration on that side um, because he spent all this money trying to get this information from the FBI and hasn't got, I don't think hasn't gotten nearly what he's wanted to get from them on it. Um, something else that I find interesting about this is bringing up other agencies and bringing up the DNC hack. Because that's the investigation, if I remember right, it's the DNC hack investigation, which is why the FBI is not considering the work laptop to be foyable. It's evidence in an active investigation of the 2016 hack of DNC emails, which is really interesting, really interesting. And I've, I've heard it said, well, that's because they're just keeping that investigation active in order to hide it. That way we can't get it anything having to do with it. They're just going to keep it active forever as a means of obscuring what really happened. But the, the hack can arguably fall under Durham. And I can't help but wonder if part of Durham's investigation is getting into the 2016 hack and that's another reason why this work laptop is in evidence. And that's another reason why that investigation is considered active because it falls underneath Durham. So that's the update in that case. And I'm interested to see what the judge has to say about it. And shout out, shout out to Brian Huddleston and uh, his attorney, Ty Clevenger, who um, keep doing this. I, it's, it's like, um, I think this kind of stuff is the, uh, this is an area where citizen journalism, if you can afford it, 
to do this type of journalism. This citizen citizen journalism provides over it, it provides a means of public disclosure, but also oversight of the federal government. Because if you know that what your the work you're doing is eventually going to be public through FOIA, then you're going to be inclined to do better work, to dot your I's and cross your T's, right? So, like it's a really good thing in our system that we have the ability to FOIA this stuff. But determining what can be FOIA and what can't is uh, or is not is um, the point of contention right now. What qualifies as a record that is FOIAble and what does not? And that's the prickly stuff that matters a whole lot. But just the act, just the fact that in our system we're able to do the stuff like this is a credit to our system, and it should be broadened a little bit. I think. Um, I think the FBI should have to turn over more after a certain period of time. Unless in camp, like in private, in camera, they go and they do, um, they present to the judge that's looking at it saying, Hey, this, this investigation is still active and I can show you that it's still active. That's why we can't turn this stuff over. Okay. Um, Brian Huggins, shout out to Brian who sent me this article. It's a little bit old, but that's okay. Over on Foxhole, good morning. Cerebral Viagra on legs. That is a interesting name. Uh, they commented, could the docs be titled labeled strategically incorrectly so they don't show up in keyword searches? Yes. The answer to that is yes. And that happened. That has happened before. And if I remember correctly, it happened with Horowitz and Durham when they were looking for Baker's phones and um, preparing for the Sussman trial just last year, just a little bit um, over last year, it um, happened with them. And James Baker actually alerted Durham and Horowitz that, hey, you guys don't have all the records that there should be. And so they went back and searched. And one of the things that Horowitz instructed the IG um, staff to do was to search for different spellings of Baker and of Sussman in the filing system because they had determined that they were missing things and that things had been mislabeled. So, yep, that is possible. And I'm trying to remember... I. I kind of think in that case, there was a search done for different spellings or it was requested. I could be wrong, but I kind of think there was. So, yeah, a lot. Yeah, like corny, like searching corny on the, the justice.gov site. All right. So shout out to Brian Huggins for sending this to me um, in the FTX scandal. You guys may remember that. Um, Ryan Salame or Sal Salame, Salami, whatever, Salami. This is the guy who met with uh, Trump's pack and met with Don Jr., I believe. Um, he managed a segment of FTX that was like digital currency or something, and he handled the Republican money, or a lot of it. And he was like the Republican side of FTX scandal. 
and he flipped really quick. Before before Samuel Bankman Free was indicted, this guy was already um, working with DOJ and was informing on on uh, on Samuel Bankman Freed. And the people that were at the top of FTX, they've all like everybody except for Samuel Bankman Freed and this guy have entered into have entered a guilty plea and taken a plea bargain and are cooperating. And I had speculated a while back when the last FTX person was arrested or pled guilty or something that it was the last time we talked about the scandal that this guy, I was wondering, like, why hasn't this guy been arrested? He must be cooperating big time. Um, but April 28th, the FBI searched the $4 million home of FTX exec Ryan Salami or former home. It's his home in Maryland. It was searched on Thursday. He was one of the co-CEOs. FBI searched the home of former co-CEO of FTX Digital Markets, Ryan Salame, on Thursday morning, the New York Times reports. FTX Digital Markets was the Bahamian, 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 subsidiary of Samuel Bankman-Fried's fallen crypto exchange or money laundering operation. Let's see. It was unclear what they were searching for at the home. Salame has not been formally accused of any crime, but you got to think it's coming. Salame's attorney previously spoke to prosecutors on his client's behalf and handed over information related to campaign finance activity. Two people familiar told Bloomberg. The former top FTX executive became a high-profile political donor after giving more than $23 million to mostly Republican candidates Her open secrets that ranked him as the country's 15th top donor last year. Bankman Freed, the crypto exchange's former CEO, has pleaded not guilty to 13 criminal charges, including conspiracy to defraud the FEC. Prosecutors allege Bankman Freed funneled $100 million into political donations through FTX executives, which allowed him to exceed contribution limits. The indictment says he was the real engine behind the Republican donations of one unnamed executive. The alleged scheme also allowed Bankman-Fried to hide that the money was actually coming from his hedge fund, Alameda. Salame reportedly threw up when he discovered FTX's impending collapse, according to the Wall Street Journal. And according to the Financial Times, he tipped off Bahamian authorities about wrongdoing at the crypto exchange, leading to Bankman-Fried's arrest in the Caribbean last December. The FBI and a lawyer for Salame did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Now, I I would bet at least a dollar that this guy's going to get indicted soon. He's going to get indicted soon, and I bet he pleads guilty and enters a cooperation. And yeah, it it only it makes it makes the most sense that he would. Unless somehow this guy was completely oblivious to what was going on, which I doubt. But that tell right there, campaign finance. Remember back in November when FT, everybody found out about FTX. Remember all those black pillars and doomers saying that nothing would happen and that they wouldn't do anything about the campaign finance or the, any of the election law violations. Boy, they were wrong. Okay, I need to do 
I'm going to end with that one. Let me move the, I'm going to move some things around. Just a second. Let's stick with justice type news for a moment. Massive operation was concluded yesterday. Well, not concluded, but was announced um, some successful arrest yesterday. This is really big. And like, you know, some of the stuff that um, doesn't get the attention in media that it deserves and probably law enforcement doesn't mind this. Um, but drug trafficking operations, just like gun trafficking operations and human trafficking operations and laundering of crypto, like all of these types of things, um, laundering of different commodities and uh, products. Um, these are all ways that the swamp and the swamp creatures keep themselves in power both financially and influence wise, blackmail wise. Um, you know, a, a, a gang that is, or a group of people that are engaged in organized crime, whatever it is, their products are that they are moving illegally. The products are how they're funding what they do and how they're gaining money in order to buy influence in the deep state of whatever countries they're operating in. Um, and so when you see large or significant arrests or indictments, seizures of drugs, guns, um, various equipment, things like that, you're seeing swamp draining in action. And especially when it's international. And you're also seeing action against intelligence agency black market activities. So we all know that intelligence agencies were were making a lot of money on the side their outfits their organizations were making money on the side through running drugs out of afghanistan right just like in just like in vietnam and laos and cambodia and um you have these dark groups that are intel that are military and they're running off the book operations and they need money for those and so they get they start engaging in these types of operations which can give them a lot of intel but also make them very rich and they can use that money to fund their other operations that they're running right so a bus like this really stands out because it's going to impact all those different things in other words the war on drugs is also a war on the deep state Which sounds weird coming from me because I'm a libertarian and I think the war on drugs should be stopped and instead we should just legalize all naturally occurring. Um, we should deschedule everything and everything that grows naturally should be legal and um, we should just end that aspect of the war on drugs and allow it to be a war on organized crime instead of a war on drugs. But anyway, that's another topic. Big bust yesterday department of justice and its joint criminal opioid and darknet enforcement team j code and a number of international partners announced the results of what they're calling operation specter they arrested 288 people the most ever 
for any J-code operation and nearly doubled that of the prior operation. Law enforcement also conducted more seizures than any prior operation. They seized 117 firearms, 850 kilos of drugs, including 64 kilos of fentanyl or fentanyl-laced narcotics and $53.4 million in cash and virtual currencies. This is a coordinated international operation that that was conducted in the United States, Europe, and South America and was a result of the partnership between J-Code and foreign law enforcement. This year's law enforcement operation was accompanied by a public awareness campaign, et cetera, et cetera. Let's see. Those are all quotes from the people that had something to do with it, blah, blah, blah. I want to get down here. Operation Spectre resulted in over 100 federal operations and prosecutions. And then it lists some of the highlights, but it's just a couple of the highlights. Over 100 operations in the U.S. Operation Spectre was a collaborative initiative, and it lists all of these partners, all of these different field offices and districts, um, massive international operation. I think it's great. And it's a number, there's been a number of these lately. And tracking, tracking these virtual currencies, man, it is leading to the draining of some really important nodes in the swamp. There was another, um, there was another bust recently, or no, was it conviction? There was a conviction announced this morning for three MS-13 people. There was something, oh, a Colombian um, Colombian intelligence officer was recently um, convicted. I think it was. All right, before we get to this story, I want to do something real quick. Let's grab this one. All right. An ex-FBI supervisory special agent has been arrested for his role in January 6th. His name is Jared Wise, and he worked um, for the FBI for 13 years. Um, FBI hasn't commented on it, but he was arrested in Washington. The story I saw was that he they used... um, they had like some, I think I want to say they had 17 officers show up to arrest him. Um, yeah, that's the reporting is that 17 armed agents. Uh, Oregon is where he was arrested. He worked for the counterterrorism outfit for New York's FBI field office. Um, after leaving the FBI, he joined Project Veritas. He used the code name Bend Ghazi, apparently. Let me see if that. I want, let me go, go to this story first. All right. FBI this week arrested a former bureau supervisor in connection with January 6th. Jared L. Wise in Oregon was arrested on Monday. 
An FBI affidavit says he worked as a special agent and supervisory special agent at the FBI from 2004 until 2017. It wasn't immediately clear where Weiss was employed at the time of the riot on January 6th. Wise was charged with entering and remaining in a restricted building, disorderly conduct in a restricted building, disorderly conduct conduct with an intent to impede an orderly session of Congress, unlawful parading, demonstrating or picketing in a Capitol building. Quote, this is quotes from Jared Wise. I'm former, I'm former law enforcement. You're disgusting. You are the Nazi. You are the Gestapo. I can't, you can't see it. Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on you. He told other officers at the Capitol, yeah, F them. Yeah, kill them, kill them, kill them, kill them. The FBI said that the security video showed Wise entering the Capitol through the Senate wing door and that cell phone data confirmed his presence. He later exited out of a window. He went in right after Ashley Babbitt, I believe. I believe that may be Abbott, Ashley Babbitt right there. Not positive, but I saw a report that he entered right behind her, that she she is in this group that's in front of him coming into the building. The initial tip came, and the reason I mentioned that, which it, the reason why that may be important and worth mentioning is that he may have encouraged her to go to where she did in the building. I don't know that he did, but I'm just saying everybody who was around Ashley Babbitt, I'm interested in because I want to know who encouraged her to go where and to do what and how she wound up in the situation that she did. The incident when Weiss yelled at police took place on the upper West Terrace at about 421 PM when violence against peace police officers was happening in front of him, quote, including officers being knocked to the ground directly in front of him. That's when Weiss turned in the direction of the violence and called for the mob to kill officers. The initial tip came from someone Weiss told about entering the building. Weiss was living in New Braunfels, Texas until last June, authorities said, and then he moved to Bend, Oregon. Federal authorities have arrested at least a thousand people in connection with the January 6th riot. All right, so most common response I have seen when sharing this article um, is people saying, yeah, but they won't arrest Ray Epps. And I get that, but I th- I don't think Ray Epps is FBI. And people keep on saying that he's a Fed. And the basis for them saying he's a Fed is the premise that it was the Feds who are behind J6. And I think that is erroneous. Um, I think it depends on what you mean by Fed. But certain people throw around the term Fed and they mean various things about it. But when I hear Fed, I think FBI. And so the allegation is that the FBI, it was behind January 6th and caused it to happen. And I strongly disagree with that. Um, And I don't think there's good evidence for that. Um, I don't think Epps is FBI. Um, We've been told he's testified to the January 6th committee. And Kinzinger, who I know is not, not trying to say that Kinzinger is someone we should trust, But Kinzinger was emphatic 
and has been emphatic that Epps is not FBI and that they've asked him about whether or not he was FBI. And he's not. And I don't really see a motivation for Kinsinger, uh, Kinsinger to lie about that. Um, I think it's, I think it, I think it's, just, I think it's a lie he, that wouldn't be worth it. Right. Like I can see why he would lie about some things to cover stuff up, but I don't think, I don't think there's anything to gain there by lying about Epps. Um, I also think that if Epps was um, FBI, it would have been it would have been shown by now. There would have been some proof at some point. I think by now we would have we would have learned of some record that showed that he was FBI. Instead, I think Epps is some sort of intel. I think Epps is Marine intelligence or CIA or DIA. Um, I think he's something. I think he's something in that area, not in the area of the FBI. And I think that he, I think that's why it's, he hasn't been indicted for his role is because it's so, it's so complicated. I think, I think he works for an agency and there's probably an investigation into him. In fact, I'm sure there's an investigation into him. But that investigation is running up against the fact that he may have been working on behalf of an agency. And so that turns it into a horse of a different color because agencies, CIA isn't supposed to be operating in America. So maybe he's associated with the agency, but they can't suss out the linkages in a way that they could actually indict him for it, right? Um, there's, there's something more there and it's not that he's FBI, but this arrest, anyway, I get why people say, yeah, they won't arrest F's, but they'll arrest this guy. But this is one of those guys who was calling, he was encouraging violence on that day. And that's what, I mean, Maybe this isn't as big of a deal now as it used to be. But I just really want people to get over January 6th and realize that there was violence that day. And we can acknowledge that there was violence that day from the crowd and from some police without saying that it was a violent insurrection by MAGA. Instead, it was MAGA getting trapped in an insurrection against Trump. And this is this is one of the guys who did it. Like, if you remove these violent actors, if you remove the people who were encouraging violence that day, namely Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, if you remove them from that day, then you don't get any type of situation like this. If you remove them from that day, you probably get MAGA standing around the Capitol and singing songs and praying enchanting but it was because of these other groups like oath keepers proud boys guys like this who were encouraging people to be violent that it turned into what it did and it fed into the deep state's hands they made it, it just they're the they're the ones to blame and then the rest of these people who got wrapped up in it um are 
they're victims. They trespassed and they shouldn't have gone in, but they're still victims of these violent operators. And this is another, this is one right here who, who thankfully has been arrested. I think one of the best things that, that um, MAGA could do would be to celebrate people who were violent that day and who encouraged violence and spoke violent rhetoric on that day um, to cheer their arrest and cheer their convictions because we don't want these people in MAGA. We don't want them to represent us. Now, this article from New York Times it said that this guy went to work for Project Veritas. I wanted to look that up. I had missed that earlier. FBI first found, pardon me, FBI first found um, Weiss living in New Braunfels, Texas, before he moved to Bend, Oregon in June of last year. Thomas E. Caldwell, a member of the Oath Keepers, who was convicted in November on felony charges stemming from J6, had once worked with the FBI and Mark S. Ibrahim, an active duty agent for the DEA was not charged in July 2021 in connection with the riot. His case has not yet gone to trial. From 2004 to 2017, Mr. Wise worked an, on counterterrorism matters at the FBI in the New York field office, same place where McGonagall was, and the same time frame that McGonagall was there. McGonagall was working counterintelligence. This guy was counterterrorism. He was briefly detailed to Libya to help investigate the terrorist attack in Benghazi. Mr. Wise left the Bureau after his supervisors became unhappy with his work and his career had stalled, a former senior FBI official said. Mr. Wise later joined the conservative group Project Veritas under the supervision of a former British spy, Richard Seddon, who had been recruited by the security contractor Eric Prince to train operatives to infiltrate trade unions. Democratic congressional campaigns, and other targets. At Project Veritas, according to a former employee with direct knowledge of his employment, Mr. Wise used the codename Bend Ghazi and trained at the Prince Family Ranch in Wyoming with other recruits. Mr. Wise took part in an operation against a teacher's union and apparently left Project Veritas in mid-2018. Okay. Okay, so he left. He's, he's been gone from Project Veritas for a while. I'd be interesting to see what exactly the FBI was unhappy with his work. What about his work they were unhappy with when he left the FBI? And I'd be interested in seeing what led to him leaving Project Veritas in mid-2018. Could be this guy joined those groups and was a bad act. Like they just recognized that he was a bad apple, right? And they're like, it's time for you to go. Okay. Let's, let's do a short coffee break, a short intermission before I present this piece. And um, where did, where did this go?
we'll do an intermission and then um i'm going to present this piece about solar winds there we go there we go got that right all right intermission i'll be back
Well, I messed that up. I hit all sorts of wrong buttons there for a moment. I think I'm still like, well, no, I don't think I know. I'm still feeling, I'm still feeling all the NyQuil I took last night to go to bed. <laughs> so I'm like, who knows what I've said on this show? I've probably said some dumb stuff. <laughs> oh. Ay, 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 ay. Okay, we're back, and we got this big piece from Wired. You guys remember the Solar Winds hack? You may also remember that Solar Winds recently got in trouble with uh what is it? I want to say section eight, but it's not exactly it's not section eight like housing. It's uh something else. It had to do with interlocking. Basically, the guy there was a guy on Solar Winds uh board who also had another company that was engaged in the same industry. And uh, DOJ was like, no, you guys got to break up. You got to break that up. You got to leave one or the other. Yeah, purple drink. Although I I didn't use the drink. I just took the pills, but it has stuck with me. Okay. This is the interesting piece I want to present to you guys. Stephen Adair wasn't too rattled at first. It was late 2019, and Adair, the president of the security firm Velexity, was investigating a digital security breach at an American think tank. The intrusion was nothing special. Adair figured he and his team would route the attackers quickly and be done with the case. Until they noticed something strange. A second group of hackers was active in the think tank's network. They were going after email, making copies and sending them to an outside server. These intruders were much more skilled and they were returning to the network several times a week to siphon correspondence from specific executives, policy wonks, and IT staff. Adair and his colleagues dubbed the second game of Thieves Dark Halo and booted them from the network. But soon they were back. As it turned out, the hackers had planted a backdoor on the network three years earlier. Malicious code that opened a secret portal allowing them to enter or communicate with the infected machines. Now, for the first time, they were using it. We shut, the, we shut down one door and they quickly went to another, Adair says. His team spent a week kicking the attackers out again and getting rid of the back door. But in late June 2020, the, the hackers somehow returned. And they were, they were back to figure out how they slipped back in. Olexity zeroed in on one of the Think Tank servers, a machine running a piece of software that helped the organization's system admins manage their computer network. That software was made by a company that was well known to IT teams around the world, but likely to draw blank stares from pretty much everyone else, an Austin, Texas firm called SolarWinds. Adair and his team figured the hackers must have embedded another backdoor on the victim server. I need to, oh, I don't like the way it zooms in on this site. I'll go right there. But after considerable sleuthing, they couldn't find one. So they kicked the intruders out again and, to be safe, disconnected the server from the internet. Adair hoped that was the end of it, but the incident nagged him. For days, he woke up around 2 a.m. with a sinking feeling that the team had missed something huge. They had, and they weren't the only ones. 
Around the time Adair's team was kicking Dark Halo out of the Think Tanks network, the U.S. Department of Justice was also wrestling an intrusion, one involving a server running a trial version of the same SolarWinds software. According to sources with knowledge of the incident, the DOJ discovered suspicious traffic passing from the server to the internet in late May, so they asked one of the foremost security and digital forensic firms in the world, Mandiant, to help them investigate. They also engaged Microsoft, though it's not clear why. A Justice Department spokesperson confirmed that this incident and investigation took place, but declined to say whether Mandiant or or whether Mandiant and Microsoft were involved. Neither company chose to comment on the investigation. That is very interesting. According to the sources familiar with the incident, investigators suspected the hackers had breached the Justice Department server directly possibly by exploiting a vulnerability in the SolarWinds software. The Justice Department team contacted the company, even referencing a specific file that they believed might be related to the issue, according to sources, but SolarWinds engineers were unable to find a vulnerability in their code. After weeks of back and forth, the mystery was still unresolved, and the communication between investigators and SolarWinds stopped. SolarWinds declined to comment on this episode. The department, of course, had no idea about Velexity's uncannily similar hack. As summer turned to fall, behind closed doors, suspicions began to grow among people across government and the security industry that something major was afoot. But the government, which had spent years trying to improve its communication with outside security experts, suddenly wasn't talking. Over the next few months, quote, people who normally were very chatty were hush-hush, a former government worker says. There was a rising fear among select individuals that a devastating cyber operation was unfolding and no one had a handle on it. In fact, the Justice Department and Velexity had stumbled onto one of the most sophisticated cyber espionage campaigns of the decade. The perpetrators had indeed hacked SolarWinds software, using techniques that investigators had never seen before. The hackers gained access to thousands of the company's customers, among the infected were at least eight other federal agencies, including the U.S. Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, and the Treasury Department, as well as top tech and securities firms, including Intel, Cisco, and Palo Alto Networks, though none of them knew it yet. Even Microsoft and Mandiant were on the victims list. In the Justice Department incident, the operation remained undiscovered for another six months. When investigators finally cracked it, they were blown away by the hack's complex complexity and extreme premeditation. Two years on, however, the picture they've assembled, or at least they that they've shared publicly, is still incomplete. A full accounting of the company's impact on federal systems and what was stolen has never been provided to the public or to lawmakers on Capitol Hill. According to the former government sources and others, many of the federal agencies that were affected didn't maintain adequate network logs and hence may not even know what all was taken. Worse, some experts believe that SolarWinds was not the only vector, that other software makers were or might still be spreading malware. What follows is an account of the investigation that finally exposed the espionage operation, how it happened and what we know so far. 
On November 10th, 2020, an analyst at Mandiant named Henna Parvez responded to a routine security alert, the kind that got triggered any time an employee unro- enrolled a new phone in the firm's multi-factor authentication system. The system sent out one-time access codes to credentialed devices, allowing employees to sign into the company's virtual private network. But Parvez noticed something unusual about this Samsung device. It had no phone number associated with it. She looked closely at the phone's activity logs and saw another strange detail. The employee appeared to have used the phone to sign into his VPN account from an IP address in Florida, but the person didn't live in Florida, and he still had his old iPhone enrolled in the multi-factor system. Then she noticed that the Samsung phone had been used to log in from the Florida IP address at the same time the employee had logged in with his iPhone from his home state. Mandiant had a problem. The security team blocked the Samsung device, then spent a week investigating how the intruder had obtained the employee's VPN username and password. They soon realized the issue transcended a single employee's account. The attacker had pulled off a golden SAML attack, a sophisticated technique for hijacking a company's employee authentication system. They could seize control of a worker's account, grant access accounts more privileges, even create new accounts with unlimited access. With this power, there was no telling how deep they had burrowed into the network. On November 17th, Scott Runnels and Eric Scales, senior members of Mandion's consulting division, quietly pulled together a top-tier investigative team of about 10, grabbing people from other projects without telling managers why or even when the employees would return. Uncertain that the witch hunt... Or that the hunt... <laughs> I see the word hunt and I automatically think witch hunt. That's what Donald Trump has done to me. <laughs> Uncertain what the hunt would uncover, Runnels and Scales needed to control who knew about it. The group quickly realized that the hackers had been active for weeks but had evaded detection by living off the land, quote unquote subverting administration tools already on the network to do their dirty deeds rather than bringing in their own. They also tried to avoid creating the patterns in activity logs and elsewhere that investigators usually look for. But in trying to outsmart Mandiant, the thieves inadvertently left behind different fingerprints. Within a few days, investigators picked up the trail and began to understand where the intruders had been and what they had, what they had stolen. On Friday morning, November 20th, Kevin Mandia, Mandiant's fi- founder and CEO, clicked out, on, clicked out of an all-hands meeting with 3,000 employees and noticed that his assistant had added a new meeting to his calendar. Security brief was all it said. Mandia, a 52-year-old former Air Force intelligence officer who still sports taper-cut military hair two decades after leaving service, was planning to get an early start on the weekend, but he dialed into the call anyway. He expected a quick update of some kind. Five minutes into the conversation, he knew his weekend was shot. Many of the highest-profile hacks of the past two decades have been investigated by Mandia's firm, which he launched in 2004, acquired by FireEye in 2013, and again last year by Google. The company has threat hunters working on more than 1,000 cases annually, which have included breaches at Google, Sony, Colonial Pipeline, and others. In all that time, Mandiant itself 
had never suffered a serious hack. Now the hunters were the hunted. The intruders, Mandia learned, had swiped tools his company uses to find vulnerabilities in its clients' networks. They had also viewed sensitive information identifying its government customers. As his team described how the intruders had concealed their activity, Mandia flashed back to incidents from early days of his career. From 95 to 2013, while in the Air Force, of Spe- Air Force Office of Special Investigations and in the private sector, he'd observed Russian threat actors continuously testing systems, disappearing as soon as investigators got a lock on them. Their persistence and stealth made them the toughest adversaries he'd ever faced. Now, hearing about the activity inside his own network, he started getting pattern recognition, he later told a conference audience. Now, um... The day after getting the unsettling news of the breach, he reached out to the NSA, the National Security Agency, and other government contacts. While Mandia conferred with the government, Charles Carmackle, the CTO of Mandia Consulting, contacted some old friends. Many of the hackers' tactics were unfamiliar, and he wanted to see whether two former Mandiant colleagues, Christopher Glyer and Nick Carr, had seen them before. Glyer and Carr had spent years investigating large, sophisticated campaigns and had tracked the notorious hackers of the SVR, Russia's Foreign Intelligence Agency, extensively. Now the two worked for Microsoft, where they had access to data from many more hacking campaigns than they had at Mandion. That may explain the DOJ contacting Microsoft, by the way, that they wanted. They contacted Microsoft to contact these two individuals. Just a possibility. Carmackle told them the bare minimum, that he wanted help identifying some activity Mandiant was seeing. Employees of the two companies often shared notes on investigations, so Glyer thought nothing of the request. That evening, he spent a few hours digging into the data Carmackle sent him, then tapped Carr to take over. Carr was a night owl, so they often tag-teamed with Carr passing work back to Glyer in the morning. The two didn't see any of the familiar tactics of known hacking groups. But as they followed trails, they realized whatever Mandiant was tracking was significant. Quote, every time you pulled on a thread, there was a bigger piece of yarn. They could see that multiple victims were communicating with the hackers. Carmichael had asked them to trace. For each victim, the hacker set up a dedicated command and control server and gave the machine a name that particularly mimicked the name a real system on the victim's network might have, so it wouldn't draw suspicion. When Glyer and Carr saw a list of those names, they realized they could use it to identify new victims, and in the process, they unearthed what Carmackle hadn't revealed to them, that Mandiant itself had been hacked. It was a holy shit moment, recalls John Lambert, head of Microsoft Threat Intelligence. The attackers weren't only looking to steal data. They were conducting counterintelligence against one of their biggest foes. Who do customers speed dial the most when an incident happens? It's Mandiant. As Carr and Glyer connected more dots, they realized they had seen signs of this hack before and unsolved intrusions from months earlier. More and more, the exceptional skill and care the hackers took to hide their tracks was reminding them of the SVR. Back at Mandiant, workers were frantically trying to address what to do about the tools the hackers had stolen They were designed to expose weak spots in clients' defenses. Concerned that the intruders would use those products against Mandiant customers or distribute them on the dark web, 
Mandiot set one team to work devising a way to detect when they were being used out in the wild. Meanwhile, Runnels' crew rushed to figure out how the hackers had slipped in undetected. Because of the pandemic, the team was working from home, so they spent 18 hours a day connected through a conference call where they scoured logs and systems to map every step the hackers took. As days turned to weeks, they became familiar with the cadence of each other's lives, the voices of children and partners in the background, the lulling sound of a snoring pit bull lying at Runnels' feet. The work was so consuming that at one point, Runnels took a call from a Mandion executive while in the shower. Runnels and Scales briefed Mandia daily. Each time the CEO asked the same question, how did the hackers get in? The investigators had no answer. On December 8th, when the detection tools were ready and the company felt it had enough information about the breach to go public, Mandiant broke its silence and released a blockbuster statement revealing that it had been hacked. It was sparse on details. Sophisticated hackers had stolen some of its security tools, but many of these were already public and there was no evidence the attackers had used them. Carmackle, the CTO, worried that customers would lose confidence in the company. He was also anxious about how his colleagues would react to the news. Quote, are employees going to feel embarrassed, he wondered. Are people not going to want to be part of this team anymore? When Mandiant did not reveal, or what they did not reveal, was how the intruders got in or how long they had been in the company's network. The firm says it still doesn't know. Those omissions created the impression that the breach was an isolated event with no other victims, and people wondered whether the company had made basic security errors that got it hacked. Mandion isn't clear about exactly when it made the first discovery that led it to the source of the breach. Reynolds' team fired off a barrage of hypotheses and spent weeks running down each one, only to turn up misses. They'd almost given up hope when they found a critical clue buried in traffic logs. From months earlier, a Mandiant server had communicated briefly with a mysterious system on the internet, and that server was running software from SolarWinds. SolarWinds makes dozens of programs for IT administrators to monitor and manage their networks, helping them configure and patch a lot of systems at once, track performance of servers and applications, and analyze traffic. Mandiant was using one of the Texas company's most popular products, a software suite called Orion. The software should, should have been communicating with SolarWinds network only to get occasional updates. Instead, it was contacting an unknown system, likely the hacker's command and control server. Back in June, of course, Mandiant had been called in to help the Justice Department investigate an intrusion on a server running SolarWinds software. Why the pattern matchers at one of the world's preeminent security firms apparently didn't recognize a similarity between the two cases is one of the lingering mysteries of the SolarWinds debacle. It's likely that Runnels' chosen few hadn't worked on the justice case, and internal secrecy prevented them from discovering the connection. Runnels' team suspected the infiltrators had installed a backdoor on the Mandiant server, and they, they tasked Willie Ballanthin, a technical director on the team, and two others with finding it. The task before him was not a simple one. The Orion software suite consisted of more than 18,000 files and 14 gigabytes of code and data. Finding the rogue component responsible for the suspicious traffic, Valentin thought, would be like rifling through Moby Dick for a specific sentence when you've never read the book. 
but they had been at it only 24 hours when they found the passage they'd been looking for, a single file that appeared to be responsible for the rogue traffic. Carmackle believes it was December 11th when they found it. The file was a .dll or dynamic link library, code components shared by other programs. This .dll was large, containing about 46,000 lines of code that performed more than 4,000 legitimate actions and, as they found after analyzing it for an hour, one illegitimate one. The main job of the .dll was to tell SolarWinds about a customer's Orion usage, but the hackers had embedded malicious code that made it transmit intelligence about the victim's network to their command server instead. Ballanthin dubbed the rogue code Sunburst, a play on SolarWinds. They were ecstatic about the discovery, but now they had to figure out how the intruders had snuck it into the Orion.dll. This was far from trivial. The Orion.dll file was signed with a SolarWinds digital certificate, which was supposed to verify that the file was legitimate company code. One possibility was that attackers had stolen the digital certificate, created a corrupt version of the Orion file, signed the file to make it look authentic, and then installed the corrupt DLL on Mandiant's server. Or, more alarmingly, they might have breached SolarWinds network and altered legitimate Orion DLL source code before SolarWinds compiled it, converting the code into software and signed it. The second scenario seems so far-fetched that the Mandiant crew didn't really consider it until an investigator downloaded an Orion software update from the SolarWinds website and the back door was in it. The implication was staggering. The Orion software suite had about 33,000 customers, some of whom had started receiving the hacked software update in March. That meant some customers might have been compromised for eight months already. The Mandiant team was facing a textbook example of a software supply chain attack, the nefarious alteration of trusted software at its source. In a single stroke, attackers can infect thousands, potentially millions of machines. In 2017, hackers had sabotaged a software supply chain and delivered malware to more than 2 million users by compromising the computer security cleanup tool CC Cleaner or CCleaner. That same year, Russia distributed the malicious NotPetya worm in a software update to the Ukrainian equivalent of TurboTax, which then spread around the world. Not long after, Chinese hackers also used a software update to slip a backdoor to thousands of ACES customers. Even at this early stage in the investigation, the Mandiant team could tell that none of those other attacks would rival the SolarWinds campaign. It was a Saturday morning, December 12th, when Mandia called SolarWinds president and CEO on the phone. Kevin Thompson, a 14-year veteran of the Texas company, was stepping down as CEO at the end of the month. What he was about to hear from Mandia, that Orion was infected, was a hell of a way to wrap up his tenure. Quote, we're going public with this in 24 hours, Mandia said. He promised to give SolarWinds a chance to publish an announcement first, but the timeline wasn't negotiable. What Mandia didn't mention was that he was under external pressure himself. A reporter had been tipped off about the back door and had contacted his company to confirm it. Mandia expected the story to break Sunday evening and he wanted to get ahead of it. 
Thompson started making calls, one of his first to Tim Brown, SolarWinds head of security architecture. Brown and his staff quickly confirmed the presence of the Sunburst backdoor in Orion software updates and figured out with alarm that it had been delivered to as many as 18,000 customers since the spring of 2020. Not every Orion user had downloaded it. Thompson and others spent most of Saturday frantically pulling together teams to oversee the technical, legal, and publicity challenges they faced. They also called the company's outside legal counsel, DLA Piper, to oversee the investigation of the breach. Ron Plesko, an attorney at Piper and former prosecutor with forensic expertise, was in his backyard with friends when he got the call at around 10 p.m. Plesko beelined to his home office, arrayed with whiteboards, and started sketching out a plan. He set a timer for 20 hours, annoyed by what he felt was Mandia's arbitrary deadline. A day was nowhere near enough to prepare affected customers. He worried that once SolarWinds went public, the attackers might do something destructive in customers' networks before anyone could boot them out. The practice of placing legal teams in charge of breach investigations is a controversial one. It puts cases under attorney-client privilege in a manner that can help companies fend off regulatory inquiries and fight discovery requests in lawsuits. Lesko says SolarWinds was, from the start, committed to transparency, publishing everything it could about the incident. In interviews, the company was mostly forthcoming, but both it and Mandiant withheld some answers on the advice of legal counsel and per government request. Mandiant more so than SolarWinds. So also SolarWinds recently settled a class action lawsuit with shareholders over a breach or over this breach, but still faces a possible enforcement action from the Security and Exchange Commission, making it less open than it otherwise would be about events. In addition to DLA Piper, SolarWinds brought on the security firm CrowdStrike. And as soon as Plesko learned this, he knew he wanted his old friend Adam Myers on the case. The two had known each other for decades ever since they worked in incident response for a defense contractor. Myers was now the head of CrowdStrike's threat intelligence team and rarely worked investigations. But when Plesko extended him at 1 a.m. or texted him at 1 a.m. to say, I need your help, he was all in. Later that Sunday morning, Myers jumped on a briefing call with Mandion. On the call was a Microsoft employee who told the group that in some cases, the hackers were systematically compromising Microsoft Office 365 email accounts and Azure cloud accounts. The hackers were also able to bypass multi-factor authentication protocols. With every detail Myers heard, the scope and complexity of the breach grew. Like others, he also suspected the SVR. After the call, Myers sat down in his living room. Mandion had sent him the Sunburst code, the segment of the DLL file that contained the back door. So now he bent over his laptop and began picking it apart. He would remain in this huddled position for most of the next six weeks. At Solar Winds, shock, disbelief, and controlled chaos ruled those first days. Tim Brown, the head of security architecture, said, Dozens of workers poured into the Austin office they hadn't visited in months to set up war rooms. The hackers had compromised 71 SolarWinds email accounts, likely to monitor correspondence for any indication they'd been detected. 
So for the first few days, the teams communicated only by phone and outside accounts until CrowdStrike cleared them to use their corporate emails again. Brown and his staff had to figure out how they had failed to prevent or detect the hack. Brown knew that whatever they found could cost him his job. One of the team's first tasks was to collect data and logs that might reveal the hacker's activity. They quickly discovered that some logs they needed didn't exist. SolarWinds didn't track everything, and some logs had been wiped by the attackers or overwritten with new data as time passed. They also scrambled to see whether any of the company's nearly 100 other products were compromised. They only found evidence that Orion was hit. Around mid-morning on Sunday, news of the hack began to leak. Reuters reported what, that whoever had struck Mandiant had also breached the Treasury Department. Then around 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Washington Post reporter Nakashima tweeted that SolarWinds software was believed to be the source of the Mandiant breach. She added that the Commerce Department had also been hit. The severity of the campaign was growing by the minute, but SolarWinds was still several hours from publishing its announcement. The company was obsessing over every detail. A required filing to be the secured a required filing to the Securities and Exchange Commission got so heavily layered that Thompson, the CEO, quipped at one point that adding a single comma would cost twenty thousand dollars. Around eight thirty a.m. or eight thirty p.m. that night, the company finally published a blog post announcing the compromise of its Orion software and emailed customers with a preliminary fix. Mandion and Microsoft followed with their own reports on the back door and the activity of the hackers once inside infected networks. Oddly, Mandiant didn't identify itself as an Orion victim, nor did it explain how it discovered the back door in the first place. Reading Mandiant's write-up, one would never know that the Orion compromise had anything to do with the announcement of its own breach five days earlier. Monday morning, Calls started cascading in to SolarWinds from journalists, federal lawmakers, customers, and government agencies in and outside of the U.S., including President-elect Joe Biden's transition team. Employees from across the company were pulled in to answer them, but the queue grew to more than 19,000 calls. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, wanted to know whether any research labs developing COVID vaccines had been hit. Foreign governments wanted lists of victims inside their borders. Industry groups for power and energy wanted to know whether their nuclear facilities were breached. As agencies scrambled to learn whether their networks used Orion software, many weren't sure. CISA issued an emergency directive to federal agencies to disconnect their SolarWinds servers from the internet and hold off on installing any patch aimed at disabling the back door until the security agency approved it. The agency noted that it was up against a patient, well-resourced, and focused adversary, and that removing them from networks would be highly complex and challenging. Adding to their problems, many of the federal agencies that had been compromised were lax about logging their network activity, which effectively gave cover to the hackers, according to the source familiar with the government's response. The government, quote, couldn't tell how they got in, how far across the network they had gone. It was also really difficult to tell what they had taken. It should be noted that the sunburst backdoor was useless to the hackers if a victim's Orion server wasn't connected to the internet. Luckily, for security reasons, most customers did not connect them. 
only 20 to 30% of all Orion servers were online. SolarWinds estimated. One reason to, to connect them was to send analytics to SolarWinds or to obtain software updates. According to standard practice, customers should have configured the servers to only communicate with SolarWinds, but many victims had failed to do this, including government agencies, didn't, the Department of Homeland Security and other government agencies didn't even put them behind firewalls, according to Chris Krebs, who at the time of the intrusion was in charge of CISA. Brown, SolarWinds security chief, notes that the hackers likely knew in advance whose servers were misconfigured. But it soon became clear that although that attackers had infected thousands of servers, they had dug deep into only a tiny subset of those networks, about a hundred of them. The main goal appeared to be espionage. The hackers handled their targets carefully. Once the sunburst backdoor infected a victim's Orion server, it remained inactive for 12 to 14 days to evade detection. Only then did it begin sending information about an infected system to the attacker's command server. If the, if the hackers decided to infect victim, uh, infected victim wasn't of interest, they could disable Sunburst and move on. But if they liked what they saw, they installed a second backdoor, which came to be known as Teardrop. From then on, they only used, or they used Teardrop instead of Sunburst. The breach of SolarWinds software was precious to the hackers. The technique they had employed to embed their backdoor in the code was unique, and they might have wanted to use it again in the future. But the more they use Sunburst, the more they risk exposing how they had compromised SolarWinds. Through Teardrop, the hackers stole accounts' credentials to get access to more sensitive systems and emails. Many of the 100 victims that got Teardrop were technology companies. Places such as Mimecast, a cloud-based service for securing email systems, or the antivirus firm Malwarebytes. Others were government agencies, defense contractors, and think tanks working on national security issues. The intruders even accessed Microsoft's source code, though the company says they didn't alter it. Victims might have made some missteps, but no one forgot where the breaches began. Anger against SolarWinds mounted quickly. A former employee claimed to reporters that he had warned SolarWinds executives in 2017 that their inattention to security made a breach inevitable. A researcher revealed that in 2018, someone had recklessly posted in a public GitHub account a password for an internal web page where SolarWinds software updates were temporarily stored. A bad actor could have used the password to upload malicious files to the update page, the researcher said, though this would not have allowed the Orion software itself to be compromised. Far worse, two of the company's primary investors, firms that owned about 75% of SolarWinds, and held six board seats, sold $315 million in stock on December 7th, six days before news of the hack broke, prompting an SEC investigation into whether they had known about the breach. The government officials threatened to cancel their contracts with SolarWinds. Lawmakers were talking about calling its executives into a hearing. The company hired Chris Krebs, CISA's former head, who weeks earlier had been fired by President Trump, to help him navigate the interactions with the government. Meanwhile, Brown and his security team faced a mountain of work. The tainted software was signed with the company's digital certificate, which they now had to invalidate. But the same certificate had been used to sign many of the company's other software products too. So the engineers 
had to recompile the source code for every affected product and sign those new programs with new certificates. But they still didn't know where the rogue code in Orion had come from. Malicious code could be lurking on their servers, which could embed a backdoor in any of the programs being compiled. So they ditched their old compilation process for a new one that allowed them to check the process program, the finished program for any unauthorized code. Brown says they were under so much stress to get the recompiled programs out to customers that he lost 25 pounds in three weeks. While Brown's team rebuilt the company's products and CrowdStrike tried to figure out how the hackers got into SolarWinds network, SolarWinds brought on KPMG, an accounting firm with a computer forensics arm, to solve the mystery of how the hackers had slipped sunburst into the Orion DLL file. David Cohen, who had more than 20 years of experience in digital forensics, digital forensics led the KPMG team. The infrastructure SolarWinds used to build its software was vast, and Cohen and his team worked with SolarWinds engineers through the holidays to solve the riddle. Finally, on January 5th, he called Plesco, the DLA Piper attorney. A SolarWinds engineer had spotted something big, artifacts of an old virtual machine that had been active about a year earlier. That virtual machine, a set of software applications that takes the place of a physical computer, had been used to build the Orion software back in 2020. It was the critical puzzle piece they needed. Forensic investigations are often a game of chance. If too much time has passed since a breach began, traces of a hacker's activity can disappear. But sometimes the forensic gods are on your side and evidence that should be gone remains. To build the Orion program, SolarWinds had used a software build management tool called TeamCity, which acts like an orchestra conductor to turn source code into software. TeamCity spins up virtual machines, in this case about 100 of them, to do its work. Ordinarily, the virtual machines are ephemeral and exist only as long as it takes to compile software. But if part of the build process fails for some reason, TeamCity creates a memory dump, a kind of snapshot of the virtual machine where the failure occurred. The snapshot contains all of the virtual machine's contents at the time of failure. That's exactly what occurred during the February 2020 build. Ordinarily, SolarWinds engineers would delete these snapshots during post-build cleanup. But for some reason, they didn't erase this one. If it hadn't been for its improbable existence, Cohen says, we would have nothing. In the snapshot, they found a delicious, a malicious, <laughs> delicious, in the snapshot, they found a malicious file that had been on the virtual machine. Investigators dubbed it Sunspot. The file had only 3,500 lines of code, but those lines turned out to be the key to understanding everything. It was around 9 p.m. on January 5th when Cohen sent the file to Myers at CrowdStrike. The CrowdStrike team got on a Zoom call with Cohen and Plesco, and Myers put the Sunspot file into a decompiler then shared his screen. Everyone grew quiet as the code scrolled down. Its mystery slowly revealed. This tiny little file, which, would have which should have disappeared, was responsible for injecting the back door into the Orion code and allowing the hackers to slip past the defenses of the mo some of the most well-protected networks in the country. Now the investigators could trace any activity related to Sunspot. They saw that the hackers had planted it on the build server on February 19th or 20th, 
It lurked there until March when SolarWinds developers began building an Orion software update through TeamCity, which created a fleet of virtual machines. Not knowing which virtual machine would compile the Orion.dll code, the hackers designed a tool that deployed Sunspot into each one. At this point, the beauty and simplicity of the hack truly revealed itself. Once the DLL appeared on a virtual machine, Sunspot quickly and automatically renamed that legitimate file and gave its original name to the hacker's rogue doppelganger DLL. The latter was almost an exact replica of the legitimate file, except it contained Sunburst. The build system then grabbed the hacker's .dll file and compiled it into the Orion software update. The operation was done in a matter of seconds. Once the rogue DLL file was compiled, Sunspot restored the original name to the legitimate Orion file, then deleted itself from all of the virtual machines. It remained on the build server for months, however, to repeat the process the next two times Orion got built. But on June 4th, the hackers abruptly shut down this part of their operation, removing Sunspot from the build server and erasing many of their tracks. Cohen, Myers, and others couldn't help but pause to admire the tradecraft. They'd never before seen a build process get compromised. Sheer elegance, Plesco called it. But then they realized something else. Nearly every other software maker in the world was vulnerable. Few had built-in defenses to prevent this type of attack. For all they knew, the hackers might have already infiltrated other popular software products. It was this moment of fear among all of us, Plesko says. The next day, on January 6th, the same day as the insurrection against Trump on the Capitol, they didn't write it that way, but that's what it was. The insurrection against President Trump. Plesko and Cohen hopped on a conference call with the FBI to brief them on their gut-churning discovery. The reaction, Plesko says, was palpable. If you can sense a virtual jaw drop, I think that's what occurred. A day later, they briefed the NSA. At first, there were just two people from the agency on the video call. Faceless phone numbers with identities obscured. But as the investigators relayed how Sunspot compromised the Orion build, Plesko says more than a dozen phone numbers, phone numbers popped up on screen as word of what they'd found rippled through the NSA. But the NSA was about to get another shock. Days later, members of the agency joined a conference call with 50 to 100 staffers from the Homeland Security and Justice Departments to discuss the SolarWinds hack. The people in the call were stumped by one thing. Why? When things had been going so well for them, had the attackers suddenly removed Sunspot from the build environment on June 4th? The response from an FBI participant stunned everyone. The man revealed matter-of-factly that, back in the spring of 2020, people at the agency had discovered some rogue traffic emanating from a server running Orion and contacted SolarWinds to discuss it. The man conjectured that the attackers who were monitoring SolarWinds email accounts at the time must have gotten spooked and deleted Sunspot out of fear that the company was about to find it. Callers from the NSA and CISA were suddenly livid. According to a person on the line, because for the first time, they were learning that Justice had detected the hackers months earlier. The FBI guy, quote, phrased it like it was no big deal, the attendee recalls. The Justice Department told Wired 
It had informed CISA of its incident, but at least some CISA people on the call were responding as if it was news to them that Justice had been close to discovering the attack a half year before anyone else. An NSA official told Wired that the agency was indeed frustrated to learn about the incident on the January call. For the attendee and others on the call who hadn't been aware of the DOJ breach, it was especially surprising because the source notes in the months after the intrusion, people had been, quote, freaking out behind closed doors, sensing that a significant foreign spy operation was underway. Better communication among agencies might have helped uncover it sooner. Instead, says the person with knowledge of the justice investigation, that agency, as well as Microsoft and Mandiant, surmised that the attackers must have infected the DOJ server in an isolated attack while investigating it in June and July. Mandiant had unknowingly downloaded and installed tainted versions of the Orion software on its own network. CISA declined to comment on the matter. The discovery of the Sunspot code in January 2021 blew the investigation open. Knowing when the hackers deposited Sunspot on the build server allowed Myers and his team to track their activity backward and forward from that time and reinforce their hunch that the SVR was behind the operation. The SVR is a civilian intelligence agency, like the CIA, that conducts espionage outside the Russian Federation. Along with Russia's military intelligence unit, the GRU, it hacked the U.S. Democratic National Committee in 2015. But where the GRU tends to be noisy and aggressive, it publicly leaked information stolen from the DNC and Hillary Clinton's email presidential campaign. SVR hackers are more deft and quiet. Given various names by different security firms, APT29, Cozy Bear, The Dukes, etc., SVR hackers are noted for their ability to remain undetected in networks for months or years. The group was very active between 2014 and 2016, Glyer says, but then seemed to go dark. Now he understood that they'd used that time to re-strategize and develop new techniques, some of which they used in the SolarWinds campaign. Investigators found that the intruders had first used an employee's VPN account on January 30th, 2019, a full year before the Orion code was compromised. The next day, they returned to siphon 129 source code repositories for various SolarWinds software products and grabbed customer information, presumably to see who used which products. They knew where they were going and they knew what they were doing, Plesko says. The hackers likely studied the source code and customer data to select their targets. Orion was the perfect choice. The crown jewel of SolarWinds products, it accounted for about 45% of the company's revenue and occupied a privileged space in customer networks. It connected to and communicated with a lot of other servers. The hackers could hijack those connections to jump to other systems without arousing suspicion. Once they had the source code, the hackers disappeared from the SolarWinds network until March 12th, when they returned and accessed the build environment. Then they went dark for six months. During that time, they may have constructed a replica of the build environment to design and practice their attack. Because they returned on September 4th, 2019, their movements showed expertise. When they returned. The build environment was so complex, 
that a newly hired engineer could take months to become proficient in it. But the hackers navigated it with agility. They also knew the Orion code so well that the doppelganger DLL they created was stylistically indistinguishable from the legitimate SolarWinds file. They even improved on its code, making it cleaner and more efficient. Their work was so exceptional that investigators wondered whether an insider had helped the hackers. They never found evidence of that, though. Not long after the hackers returned, they dropped benign test code into an Orion software update, meant simply to see whether they could pull off their operation and escape notice. Then they sat back and waited. SolarWinds wasn't scheduled to release its next Orion software update for about five months. During this time, they watched the email accounts of key executives and security staff for any sign their presence had been detected. Then in February 2020, they dropped Sunspot into place. On November 26th, the intruders logged into SolarWinds VPN for the last time. While Mandiant was deep into its investigation, the hackers continued to monitor SolarWinds email accounts until December 12th, the day Kevin Mandia called Kevin Thompson to report the back door. Nearly two years had passed since they had compromised SolarWinds. Quick comment I want to make right there. Them lurking, like them going in a full year earlier and then observing and watching emails and communications fly by and just observing how the network functioned and observing activity on it. That's what Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear did with DNC. They were just there. They were just there for months and months just watching activity on the network. And um, I I think that's how they got a lot of information. I think that's where they got the, uh, the email that became the email mentioned in the Renteria memo. I think Cozy Bear slash Fancy Bear got that by just hanging out in the DNC servers and just observing traffic. Okay, next part. Stephen Adair, the Volexity CEO, says it was pure luck that back in 2019, his team had stumbled on the attackers in a think tank's network. I wonder what think tank. They felt proud when their suspicion that SolarWinds was the source of the intrusion was formally confirmed. But Adair can't help but rue his missed chance to halt the campaign earlier. Mandiant's Carmackle believes that if the hackers hadn't compromised his employer, the operation might have gone undetected for much longer. Ultimately, he calls the SolarWinds hacking campaign a hell of an expensive operation for very little yield, at least in the case of its impact on Mandiant. I believe we caught the attackers far earlier than they ever anticipated. They were clearly shocked that we uncovered this and then discovered SolarWinds supply chain attack. But given how little is known publicly about the wider campaign, any conclusion about the success of the operation may be premature. The U.S. government has been fairly tight-lipped about what the hackers did inside its networks. News reports revealed that hackers stole email, but how much correspondence was lost or what it contained has never been disclosed, and the hackers likely made off with more than email. From targeting the departments of Homeland Security, Energy, and Justice, they caught they could plausibly have accessed highly sensitive information perhaps 
details on planned sanctions against Russia, U.S. nuclear facilities, and weapons stockpiles, the security of election systems, ding, 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 and other critical critical infrastructure. I want to add something to that list, which... Okay, no, they have it here. From the Federal Court's electronic case file system, which there's another story I covered on this show a while back. Do you guys remember? It's maybe even been a year ago where it was revealed that the federal court system's case files, their entire server was hacked. Do you guys remember that story from like a year ago? People went in and they got sealed case documents, sealed indictments, wiretap orders, warrants, and other non-public material. Given the logging deficiencies on government computers noted by one source, it's possible the government still doesn't have a full view of what was taken. From technology companies and security firms, they could have nabbed intelligence about software vulnerabilities. I want to pause and give another comment. I've had that in mind this entire article. That story from like a year ago of federal court systems being hacked. Let me see if it will... I remember this. I remember covering it on this show. Was it this? June, January 8th, 2021. Now this one has to do, this story has to do with uh, solar winds. So anyway, oh no, this is a separate story before they knew about solar winds. It's January 8th. Same. Okay. Yeah. This one has to do with solar winds. I remember an, another story about it, but anyway, like that might've been the goal or that might've been one of the primary objectives of this entire hack was just to get into the, in, the, um, case filing system so they could look up warrants and wiretaps and sealed indictments and other things. And they would learn what investigations were going on and who was being, who was being targeted. More concerning, among the 100 or so entities that the hackers focused on were other makers of widely used software products. Any of those could potentially have become a vehicle for another supply chain attack. But few of those other companies had revealed what, if anything, the hackers did inside their networks. Why haven't they gone public as Mandiant and SolarWinds did? Is it to protect their reputations or did the government ask them to keep quiet for national security reasons or to protect an investigation? Carmackle feels strongly that the SolarWinds hackers intended to compromise other software. And he said recently in a call with the press that his team had seen the hackers, quote, poking around in source code and build environments for a number of other technology companies. What's more, Microsoft's John Lambert says that judging by the attacker's tradecraft, he suspects the SolarWinds operation wasn't their first supply chain hack. Some even wondered whether SolarWinds itself got breached through a different company's infected software. SolarWinds still doesn't know how the hackers first got into its network or whether January 2019 was even their first time. The company's logs don't go back far enough. Krebs, the former head of CISA, condemns the lack of transparency. Quote, this was not a one-off one off attack by the SVR. This is a broader global listening infrastructure and framework, and the Orion platform was just one piece of that. There were absolutely other companies involved. 
Krebs takes responsibility for the breach of government networks that happened on his watch. Quote, I was the leader of CISA while this happened. There were many people in positions of authority and responsibility that share the weight here of not detecting this. CISA is really the last line of defense and many other layers failed. The government has tried to address the risk of another Orion-style attack through presidential directives, guidelines, initiatives, and other security-boosting actions, but it may take years for any of these measures to have an impact. In 2021, Biden issued an executive order calling on the Department of Homeland Security to set up a cyber safety review board to thoroughly assess cyber incidents that threaten national security. Its first priority, to investigate the SolarWinds campaign. But in 2022, the board focused on a different topic, and its second investigation will also not be about solar winds. Some have suggested the government wants to avoid a deep assessment of the campaign because it could expose industry and government failures in preventing the attack or detecting it earlier. Quote, solar winds was the largest intrusion into the federal government in the history of the U.S., and yet there was not so much as a report of what went wrong from the federal government, says U.S. Representative Torres. At a recent conference, CISA and the U.S. National Mission Force, the Cyber Command, they said that after they revealed new details about the response, remember we talked about um, CISA and Cyber Command on Monday and what they revealed about an election hack in 2020. At a recent conference, they revealed new details about their response to the campaign. They said that after investigators identified Mandion's Orion server as the source of that firm's breach, they gleaned details from Mandion's server that allowed them to hunt down the attackers. The two government teams implied that they even penetrated a system belonging to the hackers. The investigators were able to collect 18 samples of malware belonging to the attackers useful for hunting for their presence in infected networks. Speaking to conference attendees, Eric Goldstein, the leader of cybersecurity at CISA, the current one, said the teams were confident that they had fully booted these intruders from U.S. government networks. But the source familiar with the government's response to the campaign says it would have been very difficult to have such certainty. The source also said that around the time of Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year, the prevailing fear was that the Russians might still be lurking in those networks waiting to use that access to undermine the U.S. and further their military efforts. Meanwhile, software supply chain hacks are not only getting more ominous. A recent report found that in the past three years, such attacks increased by 700%. All right, I know that was a very long article, but I feel like it's worth it because it's, the largest intrusion ever of the federal government. And I can't help but wonder what, what investigations it might have compromised. Because imagine, I mean, put yourself in the deep state shoes. Wouldn't you hire some former Russian SVR hackers to hack into Justice Department and get access to the uh, their, their sealed filings? Doesn't it make all the sense in the world to do that? Um, I think that's what happened. I think I think that's exactly what happened. Um, it's interesting that that board hasn't 
is supposed to deal with solar winds first and hasn't. I suspect it's because the investigation is still ongoing into the hack. Um, it's very interesting. They wanted to they wanted to get those they wanted to get at those files. I wonder what's been compromised, and I wonder if um, I was thinking about this today um, when I was driving home from driving back here from dropping my kid off at school. Um, I was thinking about the Durham report was supposed to come out like last November. And then the Durham report was supposed to come out in December. And then the Durham report was supposed to come out in January and then February and then March. And now here we are in May. Any sign of that Durham report? I haven't seen it anywhere. I think we're about due for another New York Times or WAPO article that says Durham is almost done. He's writing that report. It'll be ready any day now. <laughs> but I think I think it's worth considering that uh perhaps just like just like I I think it's like I think it's possible, maybe even likely, that one of the things Durham was waiting on was for Adam Schiff to be off the Intel committee and maybe some others to be off the Intel committee because of leaks. Maybe another thing that's hindered his investigation is this hack. Cause you got to think like, you know, we, we kind of, we kind of, um, have a tendency to think about Durham. Like he's over there operating and he's all powerful and he, uh, you know, he has all this authority to do whatever he needs to do and so why isn't he moving faster? Why isn't he um, delivering more indictments and whatnot? But you got to imagine the enemy is also doing everything they can to block his investigation and stall it and thwart it and um, deter it. You know, they're doing everything they can to stop Durham and Horowitz and others. So, and I think that's what this represents is this is a, a massive move by the enemy to compromise hit Durham's investigation and other investigations and the consequences of that. It's going to take a long time to deal with it. It's going to take a, I wonder it'd be interesting to look up. I don't know how you would do this, but it'd be interesting to see if, if you could identify when the justice department case filing system first began getting compromised and then to see which deep state targets suddenly took trips or bought houses off continent, <laughs> suddenly bought vacation homes in, in nations where there aren't extradition treaties, <laughs> because that might indicate that they found out they themselves were under investigation. <laughs> um, okay. That's the show for oh one more one more thing I have just a moment I want to show you um, a white pill I want to give you guys before I leave today I want to give you a white pill um, reminder if you guys want to do anything to support the show my Substack buy me a coffee all that stuff Vincent Honey Farms um, my merch store all the links are in the description of the show if you're interested in supporting the show if you like what I do hit the thumbs up over there on Rumble. And uh, consider supporting the show or sharing it with someone. Um, thank you very much. 
white pill. Michael Malice is one of my favorite people. I don't agree with him on everything, but I think he's one of the most interesting people, and I agree with him on many things. And this is a beautiful white pill. Glorious reminder that the gun control people have lost the debate entirely due to gun proliferation and the work of ghost guns and other things. Look at this. This is a gif of right to carry taking over the United Nation, the United States. It starts off here. Let me pause it. Starts off here in the late 80s. Green is unrestricted. Blue is shell issue, meaning the government is mandated. They have to issue it. And then yellow is may issue where there's like some kind of test where you have to go through. Um, you have to prove that you have a need for the gun or whatever. Okay. But it's still, it could, you could get it issued by the government. You have some hoops to go through. But look at how the blue and green since the late 80s has taken over the U.S. That's 2004. 2004, almost the entire country is either May issue or Shell issue. And Alaska and New, and New Hampshire are unrestricted. That was 2004. Now look where we get to more recently. Now the green states are coming with unrestricted. Isn't that amazing? The media... The media loves making it seem, I said it was Vermont, sorry. Um, the media loves making it seem like our support of 2A is radical and that our belief that not only is the Second Amendment one of the most important amendments and it should be exercised by everyone, but our belief that everybody has a right to self-defense and a right to carry the means with which to defend themselves You look, look at how popular it actually is and look at how much success we've had. But perception is reality and the media love and the and popular culture and other things make love to make it seem like we're on the losing side of the second amendment. When actually we're very, very, very much in the majority and we've been racking up the winds when it comes to the second amendment. You know, we get these stories that get trafficked around every so often about the latest thing with the ATF or um, the latest restriction. Like we, there was just some hearings about braces the other day. Um, and all those things are important, but the media loves to spin it up as they're coming for your guns. And like it makes it seem like any moment now we're going to lose our access to guns. When actually it just keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger, um, the two Second Amendment does. And this is from 2022. This GIF is tracking up until the New York versus Bruin case that SCOTUS decided last summer, which dealt with means testing or may issue laws for guns and strengthened the Second Amendment. That SCOTUS decision did. And so 
this is just going to continue. This hasn't slowed down at all. If anything, it's picked up speed thanks to SCOTUS's recent decision um, in Bruin. So anyway, I wanted to give you this one white pill because perception is reality and the media makes sure that our perception is skewed in a way that's advantageous to them. But when you look at details and you look at actual data, facts, and evidence, you start realizing how right we are, how popular our ideas and beliefs are and our values. And um, that's a whole lot of winning right there. That's a, that's a whole lot of winning right here in this graph or GIF, I should say. All right. That's the end of the show. God bless each and every one of you. You have an awesome day. Um, and uh, remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. There were some rumble rants, and I'm sorry I missed them all. RL Skeeter, thank you very much. And I know there were some before that, but I missed them. Thanks, guys, for the rumble rants. Much appreciated. And uh, yeah, we're not going to win every battle. We're going to win this war. We are winning this war. Y'all stay positive. I'll see you tonight on Devolution Power Hour and then again on Friday morning.
Fuck.